This week, we've got a very special guest, Dermot Hamill of Youth Voice NI, and you also might know from Secondary Student Union. I got that right? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so we've got Dermot on. But before we get talking to Dermot and all the lovely things he's been doing over this past year, there's a very special person we also need to introduce. Our trusty co-host, my trusty co-host, my good friend. Matthew Spires. I don't know about special. Like you are spe- special. I don't know about. Uh, I don't know. I've been called special before, but I don't think it was in the nicest terms. Oh, <laughs> there um, we go. <laughs> but yeah, no. How are you feeling? Feeling all right. You know, this is what it is. Feeling. I feel like I just got the, the kind of winter tiredness nowadays. You no, know, I mean, you get the winter and you just feel a bit tireder for some reason. Yeah. I don't know. It's dark. It's cold. It's dark is cold. Just not fun. Yeah. Really, really upbeat note to start on. I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 going to be an upbeat episode because we uh, we've got Dermot here. Um, for those who yeah. don't know, uh, Dermot was our first ever guest and just been a very big uh, supporter of this show and everything we do from the articles to the research to the podcast. He's been he's been there since day one, and I think it's fair to say we've been there for day one for Youth Voice as well. Um, so no, it's it's a lovely. Uh, partnership that there is between between these two shows oh, yeah. um so it's, it's great to have him back on and he's just going to talk a bit about what he's been doing over the last year because he's been up to <laughs> up to a fair amount isn't that right yeah well i mean the whole wonderful world of youth politics like i launched in december youth voice ni which was my podcast and you know i used were the first people then ever inter- interview me so it was that and then I started getting involved with the secondary students union in like March with their shared education working group. Could could you explain maybe to people who don't know what what is the secondary students union and what what, what is it that they do? Because well, it, it was sec- sort of a flash, not a flash in the pan, but it came about very suddenly and had well, quite a large impact. After the algorithm crisis, in which students were affected right across the UK over kind of predicted grades back at the start of the pandemic in the kind of first lockdown students were left in a position where it was like okay what's gonna what's gonna happen to us who's gonna kind of make sure students are heard so Cormac Savage formed the Secondary Students Union of Northern Ireland from there it grew into the organization it is now where we represent students right across Northern Ireland from all the different school types and our job is basically to represent students with the department with government with all of the kind of different organizations that deal with students because what you always find at SEA and the Department for Education is they say they consult with stakeholders, which means they talk to teachers and they talk to the exam boards, but they weren't talking to students. And any time they were, it was like the, you know, the minister would go to a school that was, you know, very friendly to him. And then he would, you know, he would pick some students who had the same position as him and that would be considered consultation. So from there, we just kind of became the organisation we are now where we've had three working groups which you know students came together to produce a kind of project at the end where we had one of the biggest kind of research projects led by students ever into student mental health in Northern Ireland and there's been recommendations implemented by the Education Authority and the Department for Health 
we had the student councils at work uh, working group which kind of worked on fixing student councils across northern ireland because they don't work usually student councils are usually just kind of a way for teachers to have a photo up with their students to pretend like they care about student voice and then there was the shared education one which was all about students coming together and writing projects for shared ed and that was the one i took part in that's where i started off with the union so that took me to Stormont and I got to speak to MLAs and reporters all about shared education and my project, which was all about journalism, being a kind of young journalist, I suppose. And then, yeah, so we just we kind of represent students. In July, we held our first student assembly where all of our member schools came together to elect a new executive and to pass policy motions. So that was where I got elected as the international officer, which means I represent students on the international stage. So now we represent 40,000 students. Um, that's kind of what we do. We have, I think, 40 to between 40 and 50 schools. And our kind of job is now to represent all of those students, get them involved in things, and just kind of get, make things better for students across the North. Tremendous. And uh, how, how long have you been the international officer? That, that sounds like a very uh, deep and important role. <laughs> I think since July, it was, was when I was elected. And then we got our handover of the Queen Student Union building not long after. And then I've done work, there's kind of equivalents right across Europe. So I've, I've gotten to kind of meet up with people from down south, but there are students union. And actually very soon we will be part of the organizing bureau of students unions in Europe. So basically that means that all of the students unions in Europe come together to work together on massive campaigns and it's largely funded by the EU but we kind of post Brexit we're the only one in the UK so that was my whole job and now 40,000 students are represented in Europe which you know it's quite a big deal considering Brexit left us with no representation at all so that's kind of what I do. Good. That's, <laughs> that's pretty impressive if I like it's, it's a lot. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to focus on this too much, but uh, how how is kind of on the, the day-to-day of it work for you whenever it comes to the student union kind of stuff? Well, I kind of got lucky because the international office is only really as big as I make it. You yeah. know, it can be really small because, you know, how many people care whether or not, you know, the voices, you know, youth voices are being heard on climate in Europe. Like that's, you know, it is as big as I want it to be. So I've kind of like I've done I'm doing a lot of work at the moment on getting us kind of organized in Europe. But as well, I'll be launching a working group on political education. So there's been a lot, there's a lot of work on it. Like, you know, we're, you know, we're we're meeting with the independent review panel and we're doing loads of stuff like that. And we've I've done I've gotten to do a lot of the pop, more politics stuff to it, kind of like a lot of it of it, like there's the mental health officer focuses on that kind of stuff, and there's a lot of equality issues, but when it comes to like international politics and Brexit and even languages, which are all things I care about, they're all under my brief. So I get kind of all the fun stuff, really. I guess I kind of like somewhat the the uh, the whenever you're talking about getting to do more politics stuff. What's the how has a youth voice been coming along for yourself? In the past yeah, it's year? been pretty good. Where I think I'm on episode twenty six or twenty seven now. Nice, it's pretty good. Uh, I've had four executive ministers. Uh, I've had three of the education spokespeople from the parties, quite a few party leaders now. Recently had Potter Tobin of the N2. Nice. Uh, got one of the new Sinn Féin MLAs, Podrick Delargy, interviewed Mary Lou MacDonald, 
John McDonnell was a really fun one I got to do. Colin Eastwood got to do Peter, got to bring on Peter Weir, which was a big one, especially at the time. I really did turn into him, to be honest. And how, how did you find talking with Peter Weir? Obviously, you being so into the the, the students' voice side well, of politics, and obviously he had quite um, a misaligned uh, period being education minister. Did you feel like there was? Did you, did you give him some flack? <laughs> well, with Weir, I had actually it was kind of funny. I had went on top table with Stephen Nolan. Uh, a couple of weeks beforehand and it was literally and I really ripped into him like because obviously I was just a panelist so I didn't really have to kind of play the nice impartial host at all so I really really gave it to him on that and the next morning after waking up from it I got an email from the department saying listen you can have your interview in two weeks so I took that and I I had to kind of mute myself a bit like I wasn't allowed to go as hard line but I did I gave him as much as I could like and he was it did. I did kind of humanise him for me because I'd been just seeing him as this, as this really terrible minister, but I actually realised he's actually fairly nice. He's just <laughs> really. He was just really, really bad at his job. But and I and I will always stand by that he was absolutely terrible for students. But it was like it was. It was probably the most difficult interview I've ever done because it was like, how do I not tear this man to shreds and shatter him from my bedroom, you know, while also doing my job. Yeah. But he was one of the best I ever got to do. Got to interview Billy Hutchinson as well, which was a very different one, one of my most popular interviews. But what was it, it like was... interviewing Billy? Obviously, because he had quite a conflicted past and he, he, he sort of become more of this peacemaker role that we see him now. And I think there's a, be, a lot more being uh, talked and written about him now as, as the years goes by. But how did, how did you find talking to Billy? Billy was actually, I was going in with a kind of preconceived notion of what he would be like being Billy Hutchinson and with his past. And I was kind of going in there like I was a bit afraid almost, but he was absolutely lovely. And it was it was such an interesting interview. And I know like he sat for me with us for a solid 20 minutes afterwards just talking about politics and kind of giving me book recommendations and stuff. And he was, you know, it was he was he was really good. Like and I, I really enjoyed interviewing him. It was probably one of the best I've ever done because we just sat for 20 minutes and really got into bread and butter politics. And, you know, we talked about socialism and the kind of, you know, and all of the whole world of NI politics. It was brilliant. It was, you know, it was quite, it was a bit upsetting though because at one point, you know, I'm seeing him kind of doing, being really good on my show. And then the next minute I know we start with Jim Oster kind of posing at Stormont with their, you know, attempt at, an Ulster Solemn League and Covenant, you know, it really yeah. like, and it was kind of it. it I've conf- I very much now got conflicted views on him because of my experience. He's been really good at the same yeah. time, you know. It's he's also does stuff like that, which I can't stand by. Like, so you know, it is you know, I it kind of changed my position on him, but it's it's left me in a weird kind of thoughts on Billy Hutchinson. How how then kind of then in the last year? Because I guess whenever you got into it, you you probably had like a limited like real kind of experience like with dealing with like politics you probably like had met politicians before and maybe every so often got to talk to them before doing like youth voice and all this but then in the past like year how has your kind of like how, how has your like perspective changed on like actually dealing with like politicians and, and and these kind of people well i had the only i'd ever only ever met two politicians before i did youth voice and i and it was in a primary school trip to stormont p6 
where I met like two of my local MLAs and one of them's retired, which is Dominic Broadley of the STLP and Mickey Brady of Sinn Féin. And I, I'm pretty sure I, I told them I'd be an MLA someday. But, you know, because they, they all asked. And from there, I I just kind of, it, it's changed very much because I'd always seen politicians as almost celebrities, which was weird. And now it's just like, oh, you know, it's Chris Little or, oh, there's Robbie Butler. You know, I, it's less shocking to me every time I see an, an MLA now, which is pretty good. You know, it, it's, and it is also kind of, I'd always seen politics as this kind of adult thing that was far away. But now it's very much accessible and it's like oh this is something i can actually do i can make change here almost and this was very much changed my perspective on dealing with politicians and how politics works generally yeah you talk about your perspective changing but what about your own personal views we we, we don't have to go into what your personal views are but do you feel like they've they've changed or probably been reshaped within the within this past year especially yeah. with what you're doing on a more day-to-day basis well definitely because i'd always had you know I'd grown up with my views, but I, because I'd come from a very specific, you know, I came from a position where I never really had my views challenged. And it was now like I kind of have a much more of an appreciation for nuance, I suppose, and kind of actually being like, oh, you know, there's there's two sides to this. You know, I'd always kind of seen politics as black and white. So whenever you actually are dealing with people, and sometimes I have dealt with people where it's like, I know that in my eyes, your views are inherently wrong and you're not going to change that. But now it is kind of a position where it's like, yes, I've kind of at times I've moderated and my views have changed on things, you know, like um, a lot of the time, you know, like with the protocol, if, if this had happened, if the protocol hadn't, had happened two years ago, I'd have just taken a very much I don't care stance. But now it's like I'm in a position where it's like, yes, I actually, you know, I do appreciate there's issues here. Like I'm very much now at let's talk this out kind of thing, mm. whereas if that was, you know, two years ago, I'd have been like, no, let's implement it. You know, you voted for it. Like, I'm not, you know, so now my positions have very much changed. It is, I'm very much now, a, let's talk about these things. Let's look at where the issues are. Whereas I would have always seen it as black and white and, you know, fine, you, you were wrong, I'm right. This is, you know, it's not my fault. How do you then feel like you kind of, do you feel like you straddle, straddle the line between commentator and reporter then? I, th- I think so. Like, I think... I mean, being a Nolan does that to me anyway. Yeah. Like, because I go on the Nolan and I give my opinion or I'll write an opinion piece. And then at the same time, I'm also an interviewer. So it's like, right, I'll go and shout at Jim Alster. And then the morning after, I'll ask him for an interview. You know, and it's like, I'll go into the interview and I'll be very impartial and I'll do everything I can to, you know, hear his side. Whereas I'll go on the Nolan and I'll shout. <laughs> you know, um, like, so it is, it is, I do, I definitely do it. I just yeah. don't know whether or not I'm allowed to call myself a political commentator yet. <laughs> I, mean, I would call you a commentator. I think anyone yeah. call a commentator. We call ourselves commentators, and sometimes yeah. we're not even sure about that. Yeah, just pretend. Yeah, fake it till you make it. But we think you are one, so there you go. You've made it. <laughs> it's going to my Twitter bio now. Exactly. <laughs> as soon as it's on your Twitter bio, no one can really deny it. <laughs> That's as good as fact. That's the exactly. Let's be real. No one's ever put anything incorrect in their Twitter bio. No, no, never, never. Oh. I bet myself as a Balkan security expert. I bet myself as a as a football analyst at one point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was that, that was look at us. Uh, a very group. I mean, I sometimes throw out the line, one of Ireland's youngest political journalists. And I was there like, you go. That's because there are no young political journalists. <laughs> 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 good, good, good. Look, um, 
good good to hear what you've been up to this last year. I think maybe we'll just move on to some general news and obviously if people listen to me and Matt will hash it out. But now we now we have an extra opinion <laughs> and an extra an extra youth voice to to come into this. <laughs> yeah, I got. Uh, so yeah, it's gonna be good. I think we'll we'll start with one of the, the bigger news pieces that came out of last week, uh, which was quite a sudden one. Was uh, Chris Little. MLA for East Belfast um, or uh, of the Alliance Party saying that he won't be standing for the next uh, assembly election. What, what, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, what's your thoughts on that, guys? Well, well I'll let Derek go first since he's actually interacted with him before. So. Well, interacted with him as in the day before he announced his <laughs> leave. Uh, I, I will be sad to see him go. I... I've always, you know, I've always had a lot of time for Chris. I think, you know, most of his work in education has been fairly brilliant. Like, I really do enjoy, you know, most of what he has to say. Sometimes he is a bit more conservative than I like on social issues and that kind of thing. But I do, I really have a lot of time for him. And it will be sad to see him go because he's just been brilliant as an education spokesperson. Like, when it came to, like, taking on Peter Weir and stuff, and even like his stuff on restraint and seclusion in schools and all the big issues facing students. He was always behind it. And he was always behind the union as well. And kind of the work, any work I've done, you know, he's always been kind of big on it. So, you know, I'll be sad to see him go. I think it just gets down to the stage where I, th- I think you got to question why it's, why it's happened and why now and, and, and what's kind of the, but then no one really knows the, the true reason outside of I'm sure. And maybe internally within the party, there's, you know, we've got more knowledge going around about that, but right now I feel like we're all just guessing. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all just making our mm-hmm. our speculation uh, as to why he's not continuing on in a position they seem to be pretty, you know, comfortable in um, in an area that he seemed to, be, you know, like like representing. He, you know, he, he was East Belfast, and he seemed to like being, you know, um, a representative for that area. And I think, uh, as James pointed out before, you know, we started talking this podcast, it's likely that his replacement is going to be. Um, is Nick Connie Egan? No, she's North Down. No, she's North Down. So then, who who, who replaces her or who replaces him? Should I say yeah. that, that's the thing? Mm-hmm. Um, because here's the thing I think Chris is quite a reliable candidate in that self. He, he's been an MLA since 2010, so yeah. he's he served over a decade in politics, which is no easy feat wherever you are. So, especially the past 10 years where there's been like five different elections, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like the, the, the man is a vote winner, so I'm yeah. quite shocked to see him, see him leave. Uh, obviously, you know, being being chair of the education committee, I wonder if he feels like he's he's gone as far maybe as he he can go or maybe he wants to go. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's it's a big loss. I think I think Chris is one of the stand up politicians for here. I think regardless of your of your political opinions, I think he was well respected across the across the spectrum. Some people don't don't see MLA as beyond and all their career at the end of the day as well. Like some people want to go out of it and do something else, and you know. They, they view it as like a good stopping or a good like I don't want to say stepping stone but like a, a good you know place to learn a lot about you know politics and, yeah. and various parts of it and then they get to go out and maybe do other stuff without knowledge yeah uh, he, he might jump into the private sector now maybe get into some consultancy work or Simon Hamilton did the same yeah. for DEP like he, he left the EP and got like a nice yeah. private sector job so you never know or even more famously we have the likes of Nick Clegg who went on to be quite high up on Facebook, or sorry, Meta, as it's now being called. <laughs> uh, that's a rant for another episode, though. Yeah. But uh, yeah, look, just want to wish all the best to Chris. Um, and 
Hope he does all right on his, on his next steps. Sure. He'll be all right. Be That's the lockdown. <laughs> Look, um, also while we're talking about uh, big news in the past week, we should really start off, or we should go on to next, is COP26, the big climate uh, event going on right now. Um, we have yeah. seven MLAs being sent over from from, from here. Um, uh, one of the key highlights, I think, so far for me is uh, Philip McGuigan of mm, uh, Sinn Féin. Cycling over uh, up to up to Glasgow for the event, <laughs> uh, I thought that was very good, very impressive. Not as impressive as the dude in the big iron ball just wailing himself about the place. Oh, give a bit more context. I don't think uh, Dermot knows what we're on about here. No, there was this guy who was going. So I can't remember where he started. He started somewhere in Germany, and he decided he was going to cover himself in this big like metal ball. Like it's not like, it's like a proper metal ball. It's like wires like all around him. Oh my! And he like rolled. He's he, he rolled from like Germany all the way to like uh, Glasgow, and he came through Northern Ireland. Oh yes, I seen the photos of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's like doing it, like going down the road in like Lisburn. You know, <laughs> he was going down the road and like he he like took photos with the Belfast mayor, uh, and like uh, by City Hall, and then he got finally down to Glasgow. And it was there was some like re- it, it was some climate reason about like you know he's trying to like make people talk about. Climate change is there, like you're in a metal ball. It's not that, like, I mean, it's, it's a strange art piece. Hey, it's an art piece that got us talking, and we're still talking about true. it. So yeah, I think that's it's true. Good. Does that but, count as a viable device? Or, <laughs> I, no, I think Phillips uh, is slightly more reasonable uh, cycling to, to Glasgow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But look, we, we've had all the leaders sit down for the first conference, and uh, we've had Joe Biden fall asleep. Um, what what are, what are what are your thoughts so far then on the conference and how it's going? And do you think we'll see real change, um, real policy change come for you after this? I I'm on the fence about it. I I hope something does because honestly, I don't want to see the planet flood or yeah. go on fire because I want to live till I'm like sixty at least. And the way things are going, that's not going to happen. But I think it's largely going to be a talking shop. I think it's going to be a lot of photo ops and kind of talks and everyone going, coming together and saying, look, this is brilliant. Sure, we'll all hold hands. And she will say, yeah, we're going to fix the climate, but are we going to do anything about it? No, we're going to ban <laughs> plastic straws. You know, yeah. like it's, 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 I think it's going to be a largely a talking shop. And it's a pity because we need something. I just, I, I don't really know whether it's actually going to come come from this because, you know, it is. It just seems to be everyone coming together to take a wee photo for the Instagram. Like, <laughs> I did see Bezos apparently committing committing two billion or something to it, or or saying something like, oh, something yeah. like that. He, he, but I mean, two billion to Bezos is it's like two pounds to me or you. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not like maybe twenty quid. But, maybe twenty quid. Like it's like me throwing a fiver. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was just going uh, to say I, th- I think there no, Dermot's taking the more sceptical view that it's just going to be a talking shop I think I think there will be some progress made and I think we have seen it to some extent with uh, China and the US calling for the end of deforestation China's um, not really one to talk about China China's a big polluter yet but it's one that we have to win over yeah. I think as if we're talking in terms of West versus East uh, international relations yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm glad an event like this is happening and I'm glad it's raising more media attention it's just um, again willing if it will actually if people will stick to the targets they set out which maybe bringing it back to a more local sense 
we can't even agree on a climate change bill here. We've got two yeah. going for the assembly, which I have heard is going to be a nightmare when it comes to possible merge merging of the two bills and what gets sacrificed at the altar. Yeah, well, I mean, believe, I believe both the the representatives for each of the bills basically basically came out and said that there was no agreement between them. That, you know, there was no kind of reconciliation ground. It sounded like between mm. the two kind of whenever it came to the differences between the bills, that neither of them kind of felt that they wanted to budge on because each of them you know believe specifically as to why they are different yeah you know it's not like these are like two accidental bills that came out at the same time one of those yeah. basically an answer to the other one yeah yeah it seems like I, I think on the view or it was either of the view or sunday politics something or others yeah. you know bailey and poots talk each other on but it was very much a kind of well my bill's better than your bill because my bill protects farmers Whereas my yeah. bill was better than your bill because it protects the earth, and you know it was it, it was basically them just throwing blows at each other. So I really yeah. like it's what are they gonna do? Like what happens if we both like if they both get voted through? Are we gonna be like what do we do now? Yeah, I like, I actually don't know what would happen if both of them get free. I mean, both of them can't get through surely because one one contradicts the other. One contradicts the other. So mm. you just surely assume that people will stake their their bets. But if you vote for one of them, you're not going to vote for the other one. Yeah. You hope in that mm. scenario and then well, you can think, imagine that mo- like one of them's like a i mean we've seen before that whenever you get certain like especially never comes like the agriculture community because every part like a lot of parties in Northern Ireland have quite a lot of rural quite a, quite a large rural constituencies and they don't want to lose that area because there's a lot of people who, who you can kind of lose if you don't you know uh take account of that stakeholder that it can kind of actually be a little bit awkward to Mm. to to face up against the that kind of um large community in northern ireland yeah um, yeah i think it's gonna put Sinn Féin and the stlp in a bit of trouble and it seems like they're backing yeah. claire bailey's bill but Sinn Féin and the stlp both thrive off the rural catholic vote yeah and yeah. how's that gonna work because from my experience speaking to people people are very much you know they're very progressive but when they're in the farming community it's like well, yes, I want to fix the environment, but also I have a farm. Like, what exactly. like, what are people going to do? And there's a lot of people who are now scared of, you know, kind of climate action as a result. So is that going to scare off voters? And, you know, what is that actually going to mean for, you know, the Sinn Féin and the SDLP are, obviously, you know, are very much behind Bailey's bill. I think the UUP are in a similar position, but they're in yeah. a whole other world at the minute over, you know, over votes. So... Like what kind of crisis is it, is it going to cause for them when they're choosing between young kind of climate activists and your older rural you know votes? I I, I maybe wouldn't put it in, a, in the cleavage of young versus old. I would say it's more of a just a straight rural versus straight urban sort of divide. Mm-hmm. And you, you've talked quite eloquently there about the Sinn Féin and the SDLP's problem with it. Um, I think I'll just add a bit more about the UUP. Um, I think for them, this could be a real split or the where the party goes between its new progressive liberal image that it's pushing and maybe trying to recapture and regain that more urban vote, uh, especially among more sort of the east of the province, uh, which might be the sacrifice of some of their rural um, strong base that exists in the likes of Fermanagh and Tyrone. So it's, you know, I think for the UP, it's a very, very tight it was a tight, tight line to walk, tight, tight rope to walk. I can't remember the exact phrase. 
But uh, yeah, it'll be a difficult decision for them. Fine uh, line. Fine line. There That's we go. Right. Awful with my words. There tonight. we go. <laughs> but uh, again, I think Alliance will just go with the Greens on it. So I don't think that they have any problem voting against. Does it. Alliance have any rural, <laughs> rural <No>. support? <laughs> South Antrim. Oh, <laughs> But yeah, no, it's look, COP26, world's trying to fix it. Uh, and I can barely even get one bill on climate change free. So, have a bad joke. Go for the bad joke. <laughs> Closest alliance get their support is in Botanic Gardens. Uh, it was a bad joke. It was a bad joke. My <laughs> cop that out, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I'll see how badly it hurts my ego. We'll think about it. <laughs> But yeah, like, um, is, there, is there anything else you guys want to bring up that's uh, sort of happened in the last week that you think is worth mentioning on the show and having a wee discussion on? Um, I don't just be, I'll let Dermot go first if he has anything that he feels should, should be. I was going to say, I think the UP have been in a very interesting situation this week again with the resignation of one of their councillors. Oh, I forgot about that. Highlighted, has highlighted the big divisions in the party, I think, because I think it is very much showing their, you know, their more conservative base, which is, you know, what they've thrived upon in the past. You know, they're very much Monday Club conservatives versus this new BD bounce, I suppose. And I really hate quoting that, but <laughs> the BD, but you know, this new progressive wave of Doug Beatty, yeah. you know, it's very much putting them in that position where it's like, okay, what does this mean? You know, they're like, we're seeing people like Ian Marshall announced in West Tyrone, which is a big move yeah. I thought he was going to be going to be near in Armagh which is I'm kind of a bit raging about because that's my constituency but you know what is this like I'm very intrigued to see what happens now with kind of that clash of the two sides of the UUP now with the, with the resignation yeah I, th- I think it's always been a difficult one for the UUP with BD coming in because that party is I, I've, I've said in this podcast before it's a party of individuals uh, and what I mean by that is they're they're all united in not being doppers. Um, so you have this such broad church of uh, people who are happy enough to call themselves unionists, but those who are near Thatcherite in their sort of conservative fiscal policy to those who would be very much centre-left on the spectrum um, within unionism, who are definitely more attracted in this latest wave under Doug Beatty. So I think... If we're going by recent polls and the let's say the UP could, it has now the possibility, potential to be the largest unionist party. I think you're you're really going to see a party struggle with two directions pulling in very separate ways. While they might be united on a unionist front when it comes to the more bread and butter issues, I think they may struggle to come to consensus. Uh, and with, with Harold uh, leaving, I, I think it definitely shows that there are some conservative elements within the party who are not so happy with this change in leadership and this change of direction. Um, I, I think it'll only do the party good, though. I think putting a larger split between themselves and the DUP can can only be really considered a good thing. And if a more moderate Ulster Unionist party is the future, I, I think it'll only really serve them well in the next few years. Uh, it, it Maybe it'll only serve them well in the next short-term electoral success. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a better way of wording it. I mean, I do think I look at it partially. I think it makes me question maybe something that I, that I hadn't thought about so keenly before is looking at the, the kind of growth that they've had and questioning how much of that they could possibly lose, uh, actually, how how they could gain part of it, but then also lose part mm. of the, the, the base that they had before. Because right now, I don't think they would lose in the next election. They would only lose it follow, in probably the following election where... Um, 
decisions start getting made and, and actual stances have to be taken. But right now I feel like they, they kind of share the same strength that even Sinn Féin in the South have. But right now for a lot of people, they're actually a blank check. You know, they're, they're, they're a blank slate. They're, you're able to like depart what you want on the, you know, a party who's not got a lot of power, but who is kind of in the rising position. Yeah. You're able to look at them and say, actually, this is, this is something that I can support, even though I don't really know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of put your imagination into that. And for a lot of people, that's like a very potent, you know, political <laughs> tool is to be able to kind of, you know, create something in your head for a party and, and kind of create like it as your solution to, you know, whatever issue you feel there is, which, you know, for a lot of UUP supporters, I'm, I'm sure they feel there's a lot of issues right now in terms of like whatever you want it to be um, in Northern Ireland, whether it be unionism or or protocol, protocol or, or housing energy pro- yeah pro- exactly yeah. there's there's plenty to be annoyed about and there's plenty to kind of look at the EUP and say like oh maybe this is the new EUP that's going to answer all my questions mm. yeah it is is the EUP is I think it's going to enter one of its most interesting stages really like yeah. you know they have they've been weak over the last I'd say you know really my entire lifetime but now they're yeah. in a position where they're being torn apart, it seems almost, because I'm talking young people who could use a Jim Molyneux, who are, you know, very much, you know, Tories, like, and then at the same time, I'll talk to young people, and it's like, you're not far off from PBP here, you just really yeah. like the union. Like, you yeah. know, they're being, like, they're being really, really, like, kind of, like, they, they, I don't know what direction they're going in, you know, yeah. even in the assembly team, where you have Doug Beatty, who's so, so progressive, you know, he's big on social issues, he's, really really fighting for a kind of a more liberal agenda but then you also have a big kind of contrast with most of the rest of the assembly team who even in the paul gibbons bill and things like that they are so much more conservative so it's 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 interesting how much they'll really transform you know and what you know how it'll actually pan out for them you know i'm very intrigued that this next assembly election like they're who i'm really interested in seeing like i know there's a lot of radical changes coming but it's them who i'm really focusing on because this could be massive for them yeah and even if i think if you look at some of the candidates they selected for the the for this upcoming election you see definitely a more center-left sort of ideology running through them you have the likes of julianne core johnson who is their candidate for north belfast which by the way they're putting a lot of weight behind her they've opened up an advice center in north belfast they've they've got her like every other day on the Twitter like and this is somebody who was originally a, a progressive unionist party councillor yeah. of you know as we are Billy Hutchinson's uh, former party um so like to say that this isn't a party that's going for change um or is willing to sh- uh, shed old members for new I, I don't think you can really say that it's a party on the move yeah um whatever that will mean electoral success don't know yet but we'll wait and see. I'm just trying to think who, who else has been Stephen McCarthy, South Belfast. Mm. He's he's publicly came out and said uh, on the left to right, he is just a centre left politician. Very big changes for the more conservative elements. You would see potentially in the likes of John Stewart within the yeah. UUP. Like, like as as I've said, a party's going to have it rough when they do get into power and they have to decide on policy. There's going to be yeah. some mad compromises from that assembly team. Yeah, even as I mentioned before, Ian Marshall, like the only ever unionist to enter the Shannon down south, like yeah. that's, you know, he is, he's a very well-respected figure in the Republic and even amongst Republican politics, you know, he's very respected. Whether that will translate to the unionist, you know, 
to the unionist vote is very interesting. Like I'm very intrigued to see how that will go for him because he could be, you know, he could be a massive asset to the party if he was elected to the assembly. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a party on the move. And I think we're, we'll all be keeping a close eye on them in these next few months. Anybody got anything else to add? I'm, I'm, I'm running low on stories in my head. Oh, there's plenty. There's plenty, James. I mean, there's, there's, it depends what, what you want to talk about. There was a well-being, uh, their well-being results came out, said that women were suffering more than men in some areas. Okay. The Department for Communities Publishers or? Uh, executive. Okay. Um, well, so the executive published this well-being uh, report. What, what did it really um, say or get into? Um, so one of the things was loneliness is 2% or people who are, I think it's uh, at the very least sometime like or like usually lonely it's like up by at the very least so then you have people who are saying they're always lonely and then you have people who are saying like oh i'm you know generally lonely and mm-hmm. stuff like that that's up by two percent in this in a year which is went from 17 to 19 percent all right so about one in five people then are, are lonely in northern ireland or experience loneliness yeah experiencing a decent amount of loneliness oh, would wow. be the 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 takeaway from that it's 19.8 percent. so basically 20 if you really want to round mm-hmm. it up uh, which is something we've, we've talked about before and we've kind of, I mean, it's also depressing every you post, I mean, it, it, to, to the greatest depressing, every post on social media and then you kind of just see so many people kind of, because we posted in the past and usually when we post about loneliness, it becomes like some of our best performing posts have been about mm-hmm. that. So it becomes like, all right, people like really actually feel this. Like this is a very potent issue in, in, in a lot of ways, which is you know sad to see. Uh, it's like actually a very, Big thing, and I mean, I feel like clearly, not like quick enough action is being made upon it, and and, and maybe the assembly. I I think there was there has been you no know, announcements of like a loneliness strategy being announced, but then it, it takes so long to get the loneliness strategy through, and it takes so long for you know all the various parts of it to then come through to actually you know get to the place where stuff might actually change. You gotta wonder what this kind of will look like by the time anything actually comes about in terms of helping people who are feeling this way. Yeah. Especially in like an, an internet, I, I don't want to just blame the internet on it because that's too Remember. easy. But like, uh, you know, whenever you've got things like the internet, you've got things like we just went through COVID where everyone felt, you know, horrendously lonely for a year. Um, you you got to kind of wonder where, how, how it's going to, it's not, it, you have to assume it gets worse from here hmm. um, if action is not taken. But then is it, does, it does feel difficult to say how action should be taken. By government to you know make people less lonely it's a very like difficult yeah for government like, to approach like do we mandate people friends like mandatory five minute hand holding a day people let's get going <laughs> like yeah i like it is it is one of those issues where it's like how do we actually fix this like i know yeah. a lot obviously a lot of it will come down like counseling and kind of opening up you know groups and support groups and that kind of thing but like that is one of those more difficult issues to tackle and i'd say a lot of it is because of the pandemic like i know i spoke i had to speak about it in stephen nolan i got a phone call one morning being like yeah will you come on talk to me about your mental health and it's like yeah right you know and it was you know and it is every time i speak to young people it's like yeah i'm really not good over the pandemic and it seems people are a lot happier like i'm a lot happier as i'm out of lockdown but you know maybe is that going to be shown next year as we're out of lockdown are the figures going to go way down like hopefully but yeah. like what do we do to actually like tackle that yeah i think also one of the one of the very sad things to see was like it whenever it did a it did an age breakdown for it as well and i mean 
not to be harsh, but to some degree, you expect sometimes loneliness in the elderly. You expect to see that because I was around like 25 or 26 percent was for the for the more kind of the elderly. It's, it's, it's a more common thing. It's a more common thing. It's, it's not a new thing for society to see like older people being slightly lonelier. Um, but I think you, you saw like people between like the ages of like 17 and like 29 also being like in you know the the mid 20s in terms of like loneliness uh, as in like 25 26 percent that you know that people in that age range are feeling very lonely which is more of a new thing in society is that kind of age range feeling feeling the effects of loneliness mm. um, which is really hard to answer how you're meant to like make substantial change through policy with that kind of stuff um, or whether you, you have to just wonder is this something that needs to be more of like a uh, society looking inwards on itself and saying how do we change on a person-to-person basis i don't know it's, it's hard to tell <laughs> where yeah. to go with that kind of thing is it is, is loneliness been a topic that's been brought up in the in the union at all uh we've we've had not really loneliness by itself i mean mm. our big focus has been kind of we did a massive drive on mental health but it was largely kind of mental health you know support provision within schools and kind of how young people want you know their mental health support to be like there's been a lot of rising groups and i know pure mental does a lot on kind of in school you know mental health stuff and you know organizations like crisis cafe and all of these different groups but loneliness is it's not really been something that's even been kind of spoken about specifically because it is like a lot of us are kind of like how do we actually fix this like with young people it's like we see these figures and we're like right we need to do something but even we're kind of sitting there going how do we fix loneliness like you know whenever it's like we're we have underfunded counselors we know exactly what we need to do there we need to give them more money and you know provide counseling in a different environment you know there's all that kind of thing are very kind of clear this is what we do this is clean cut we fix this but loneliness is something where it's like how how do how do we fix this you know do we just kind of pull up graphics being like yeah like if somebody's by themselves go talk to them like yeah that's you know like how how do you fix that like that's it's something that i'd like to see some way to kind of help improve it and work on it and kind of make change on but i i really don't know how and i don't you know, I, I haven't seen that many suggestions on what we can actually do. Like, is it a policy thing or do we just kind of need to change societal attitudes? Yeah. Part of me thinks that we have to, I think it's almost, we need to flip the, the attitude right now towards the internet, whenever we look at it. Because even whenever I say, like, one of the causes is of, the, of it, maybe, you know, the way that we kind of interact with the internet and how it's allowed us to kind of di- disassociate from people that to the same degree that maybe we need to start looking at the internet and saying like, how do we use this as a tool to like prevent loneliness? Maybe how do we like start implementing this as like actually a way to get better connected with people? Um, I'm not saying we need to make a metaverse, (laughs) but but, I mean, I think there's definitely, you have like basically a a place where you know that most lonely people are going to be is the, the internet, especially if they're younger. That's, that's where they're probably going to gravitate towards. So I think using it then to be like a tool needs to be like looked at quite heavily, you would hope. Do you mean like a, I, this is an awful way to word it, but like a government safe space? Government safe space. For like, for people to go to online. Is that what you're sort of thinking about? I'm not saying anything in particular. I'm just saying that if we see it, even though we see it as a cause, I think there's clearly like potential for it to be like used to like actually maybe help. Uh, whether that be like, 
the government safe space for people just like finding, you know, ways to places that become like easy for like lonely people that they're at or like people who feel like lonely being, you know, standing up spaces where they're able to like communicate with other people, other people who maybe feel that way or, or talk to, you know, people, whether it needs to be like a counseling in terms of like how, how they deal with their loneliness, how they kind of, you know, maybe take steps to making it mm-hmm. better. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, Spitball. I know. I don't mean to put pressure on you. I was just speaking uh, I'll do more research on it and, <laughs> and I'll, I'll come back with better ideas. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just that it's one that hit my eye. And uh, I feel like it's just one of those things that we, I've, I've, it's one of those things once you start seeing it, it's kind of hard not to, to see like stuff continually coming out about loneliness. Um, not just in Northern Ireland, but like in, you know, other places. And it's the problem in the South and in the UK and, you know, it's, just seems to be an issue, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I mean, we can talk about other stuff as well. I mean, we can talk about the the what do you call it? The Northern Ireland ministers election and petition of concern. Oh, bill. well remembered. Well remembered. I believe is what it was called. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, what that bill did was, uh, it was to create better stability of instalment if it ever collapses yeah. again, um, which. The fact that we need to have a bill on it maybe suggests that it probably will. Um, Yay. Yay. Unstable government. you got to love it. So really what this bill does, instead, when either one, if either a first minister or deputy first minister steps down, you have seven days to designate somebody else to get the executive back up and going. As it stands, yeah. As it stands. That will be increased to 24 weeks. Yes. Substantially longer. It means the executive can still stay up legislation can still get passed through and negotiations still keep on going yeah. in that period no i want to give cons- uh just a wee asterisk here this bill probably won't come into effect early next year yeah we need so, to go through house of lords basically yeah i need to go through the house of lords they'll need to do the ping-ponging thing between the two ho- two houses before then we'll receive royal assent um but it still gives the dup plenty of time to pull down the assembly yeah um until, yeah until Yay. the new year um, so just want to put that out there, yeah. but I think this is a bit of legislation that's stepping in the right direction for managing this, uh, post-conflict society that we live in. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad to see it's making process, uh, through, through in West, in Westminster. Yeah. The petition concern changes. Hopefully it'll be good as well. Part of me doubts whether it's actually going to be much help, but I suppose we'll see. Um, cause I mean, uh, as I was saying, me and James talked about before petition concern whenever we were younger was kind of like a big issue. Like it was like a big thing that seemed yeah. to be stopping a lot of things from going through government that people wanted to see go through government. Um, it's been used less as of recently. I yeah. can't, I, I mean, just in terms of the last couple of years, I, I find it harder to think of like a time where the petition concern was used where I really like cared. I'm sure it has been, I'm just forgetting, but yeah. uh, I, I still think it's like a, it's like a thing that needs to be changed. And it's probably like a holdover from like a, a time where it was necessary and now it's not as necessary mm-hmm. in, in government. And I feel like now it's just kind of more a blockage to like good, good change, hopefully, especially whenever they're, they're making it like they're, they're updating it. So hopefully it'll be slightly more reasonable to use now, uh, but we'll see. Find out. My biggest argument against collapsing the assembly at the minute is I won't get, I won't be 18 until January 29th and I uh, really want to vote. Yeah. So my big argument is, if you're going to pull it down, wait until February, and then oh, yeah. pull it, pull away. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take it all down. Like Jeffrey can, Jeffrey can rip the assembly down if he wants, oh, but if he can wait until I can vote, yeah, that would be really sound of him. Spot on. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think they're gonna do it. Like, I'm, I'm no, just, I, I don't think so. Really. I, don't. I, yeah, I, I, I think it's um, there's been significant process also made on the protocol in the last few weeks yeah. anyway. So, what were you gonna say, Dermot? Sorry, before we, I think I, th- I think we were the closest we were really to sit to it was kind of the Arctic like stuff. You know, yeah. and the kind of talks of Sinn Féin pulling it down, which, again, was opposed to because I want to vote. Like, I don't care the reason. I just really want to vote. <laughs> yeah. I've been waiting years. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested to see whether he will. I, I, I don't think he's got the stomach for it, to be honest. No. And I mean that in the best way possible. I really don't want him to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think as well on top of that, if he pulls it down, there's a lot of legislation that needs to go through that. Yeah. You know, if it is pulled down, like there's a lot of criminal justice stuff has to go through that could, you know, very common sense legislation, stuff on restraint, stuff on integrated education, kind of a lot of big bills that need to go through. And if it is pulled down, like, you know, it's going to pop back legislation for, you know, possibly a couple of years, considering the last time we pulled it down. Like, I mean, half of that legislation is stuff that was holed over from before the last time yeah. we pulled it down. Like, so I mean, It'd be very depressing if that were to happen again. I mean, it'd, it'd really make a question the stability of the Northern Irish government. Uh, I mean, we're, not the st- not, we already question the stability of the Northern Irish government. <laughs> more still the efficiency, I suppose, <laughs> of the Northern yeah, Irish I mean, government. Kelly Armstrong has been trying to get her integrated education bill through for five years. Like, you know, I, yeah, I really sure. don't think Kelly is going to be happy if, if he stops that going through again. <laughs> you know, like it's the same with conversion therapy legislation, things like that. Yeah, in a long time on. But if you know, if if they, if they don't go through now, that's going to be another kind of going through the whole process again. Come next May, if it does come back, you know, and a lot of people are saying if it, if it pulls down again, it won't come back. Like, which that's pretty scary to be honest. I like the example. Ish, it's entertaining. Yeah. yeah, but we, it's our lives at the same time, so it's also terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm just going to say, does anybody have any more local news they want to bring up? Because I want to bring up a wee international issue, which I, I want to just highlight on the pod before I close it. Go ahead. News um, uh, out. Yeah, so I, from moving from one post-conflict society to another, I think i just like to draw some of our listeners to the attention of what's happening in Bosnia at the moment. Um, these, Bosnia is a really complicated state. It's sort of like here, but instead of two communities, they have three that are joint in government. So they have free presidents, essentially, that serve on a yearly basis. Um, so the free communities are, by the way, it's uh, you've got the Serbs, uh, then you have Bosnians, and then you have Croats. There's a, they have also autonomous zones within Bosnia and Herzegovina, one of them being the Republic of Spurska, which is Serb-controlled, uh, and they have their own government. So... And then even within the Republic of Spurska, there's also other autonomous regions within it, which also has its own local government. Does this contribute to the story? Or are you, are you I'm, gonna... I'm building how divided the society oh, is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, Dermot, your, your face says it all. It's so confusing. <laughs> but um, what's happening is that the Republic of Spurska government uh, is essentially pulling out of all uh, national sort of agreements. And that affects everything from... Uh, drug delivery, health, education, everything that makes life go on. Um, it's it's pretty much succession talk. They they want to break away and join Serbia. Um, things are getting a bit dicey at the moment. There is 
there is rumors of war going to break out again. And if you know anything about the Balkans, uh, when it comes to wars, it's they're they're absolutely brutal. The last genocide in Europe happened there, and everybody seems to have forgotten about that. So um, it's an issue quite dear to my heart because I'm I have quite an affinity for the region. Um, so I just thought I would spread that news and make you aware. And if you can, go go look online uh, and and read into it, and yeah, just bring some more international attention to that part of the world because it needs it. I agree. Yeah. It's hard not to agree when I give such a, an emotional <laughs> yeah. speech. Like, and I thought Northern Ireland was complicated. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there, there's an episode or an article about potentially um, comparing Northern Ireland to other post-conflict societies oh, in the Balkans yeah. and to see how there's far we've... there. Yeah, maybe to see how far we've even potentially come because I, I don't think we're as bad as people make out to be, it, really. I mean, whenever I... In my final year of politics, we did like a, a whole unit that was just around like deeply divided societies and i mean it did make northern ireland look a little bit like okay we're not like the worst yeah. <laughs> like around it's kind of there like oh we're pretty bad but we're not like no we're we're, we're far from the worst. we've actually come and in a lot of ways northern ireland is like a template for a lot of places now in terms of like how to move forward after yeah which is funny because now we we think of ourselves as so like dysfunctional but the, yeah, like that 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 shows how messed up the world is when northern ireland's the template like, <laughs> yeah like, like we can't agree over where the gliders go. <laughs> <laughs> I think it should go up both roads. All right. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, look, Dermot, thank you for coming on and talking with us. I've absolutely loved this. It's been great to have you back on and catch up. Matt, thank you for co-hosting this with me and uh here every week. Producing a fantastic podcast as I always. I love here. So can yeah, we are in your well. flat, so it's yeah. uh, it's one of these. But yeah, thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week, hopefully for our alliance roundup. Take care.